we're talking about communion, moving on from baptism. And last time I uh, sort of briefly covered um, the uh, communion as it is done in the Roman Catholic Church and how they practice it and what they believe about it. And I talk a little bit about the sacrifice of the mass and all of that stuff. Now the reason that I did that is to create a contrast between that view and uh, the more popular view that most evangelicals hold, which is what we call the symbolical view. Um, and most people think that you either can hold to the symbolical view or the Catholic view, and that's your only two options. So what I'd like to do today is sort of present another alternative, which of course I would believe is the biblical view. And to do that, I got two texts of scripture, uh, which would be Exodus chapter 20, verse 24, and 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three. You are probably familiar with 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three, but Exodus chapter 20, verse 24, and 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three. Exodus 20, 24, I'm going to start in the Old Testament, reads, An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings, and your peace offerings, your sheep, and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. 1 Corinthians 11.23 reads, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is God's word. So, in these two verses, we have, or they're tied with the notion that God's name is to be remembered in both of these actions. And it is attached to it the promise that in every place where he causes his name to be remembered, in that place he will come to you and bless you. Now in the scriptures, of course you guys remember, we've been talking about how sacraments are means of grace. In other words, they're channels whereby God gives us his grace. John Wesley taught that God conveys inward grace through outward means. That word convey is important because the word convey is a transportation word. When you convey something, means that you take that thing and move it from one place to another place. You ever heard of a conveyor belt? That's what it does. It takes boxes or rocks or whatever it is and it moves it. And so to convey something is to move something, usually through a medium, from one place to another. So God conveys, delivers, 
moves inward invisible grace through outward visible means. Here's the quote. Um, uh, John Wesley says, this is most true that all externals of religion in order, are in order for the renewal of our soul in righteousness and true holiness. But it's not true that the external is one and the internal way is another, but there is but one scriptural way where we receive inward grace through the outward means which God has appointed. That is, that God has appointed certain places visible external places where he conveys to you invisible inward grace. So in Exodus, God tells the people of Israel, I want you to build an altar, a physical thing that you could see. I want you to make sacrifices on it. And when you do that, you will be remembering me, God who took you out of the land of Egypt and brought you to this land. And when you do that, I will come to you. Now, how does God came to them? Well, obviously not visibly, because he cannot be seen. He came to them invisibly, but in those outward physical things that he had appointed for them to do. And so in the scriptures, in 1 Corinthians, Jesus takes bread, he takes wine, he tells them, do this in my remembrance, this is my body, this is my blood. So in other words, when Jesus does that, the promise that he gave in Exodus, I believe, is still there, though the means have changed. We don't longer build altars to God. We no longer make sacrifices or burnt offerings. But God has a place where he has said that when you do this, you will be remember, remembering my name, and in that place, his promise that he will come to you and bless you, still binding. So God has attached that promise to this means or outward means, which in this case would be communion. Now that quote that I read from John Wesley was a letter to a man called William Law. William Law was an English uh, priest in the Church of England, and he was part of a tradition called the Quietist Tradition. The Quietist tradition um, came about somewhere around the 1600s uh, by a guy named Miguel de Molinos. He was a Spanish uh, priest or monk. And you may have seen some of, if you grew up in church, you might have, do you remember bookstore, Christian bookstores? Remember when we had those, an actual building, young people, there was a building that we would walk into and you can get physical books. This is a physical book, okay? And uh, there used to be a book called Spiritual Guide, and it was, uh, the name was Michael Molina or something, because Miguel is very hard for English speakers, I guess, to pronounce. So Michael Molina. Okay, that book is a very thin book, maybe 170 pages. That was an awful, uh, abridged version of the original. I don't know who did this, but they chopped up the original and put it in this little small book that... It became very popular when I was, whenever I heard God saved, people were buying it and telling me. Well, that book, Spiritual Guide, is an abridgment of the original, had a slightly longer title, the original book, uh, written by Miguel de Molinos in the 1600s. Um, you guys want to hear the title? 
You ready for this? Okay. Let's do my best Castilian that I can do, okay? <clears throat> Guía espiritual. Que desembaraza el alma y conduce por el interior camino para alcanzar la perfecta contemplación y el rico tesoro de la interior paz. Or, spiritual guide, which releases the soul and conducts it through the interior path to acquire the perfect contemplation and rich treasure of interior peace. That's the title. I have no idea how big that book was, but that was what it was in the front cover. Now, what is quietism? Quietism is the idea that in order to um, live a godly life, a life of holiness, closeness to God, you had to quiet your soul. You sit around, you read the scripture, you meditated, and through quieting your soul, you will um, get closer to God. This view rejected any activity that had to do with church, right? You, you did a lot of uh, prayer, fasting, and meditation alone. Uh, any activity, any efforts, they will say, would interrupt that closeness you would have with God. And so you will stay at home and seeking God through quietness and peace, etc. It was it's very Eastern-like, right? You, you did meditations and things like that. Now, the Catholic Church condemned it as a heresy, obviously, because Catholicism is all about going to church, doing the sacraments, doing penance, doing confession, and all that. And so he says, no, the way they get close to God is you ignore all of that, you stay, you meditate, and you sense the Spirit, etc. Okay? Now, that view, in its original form, is very extreme. But as history goes by, people took those ideas, tweaked them a little, and we still, to this day, have versions of that. For example, you may hear people say, you know, Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. Because religions is stuff that you do, and so you, you, you have to be sensitive to the Spirit. And you have to sense the presence of God somehow in the air floating around you or whatever. Right? And get that rema word, which I don't know what that means. So those things are stuff that came through this idea of quietism. Wesley rejected that for the reason that he believed that holiness of heart and life was not just something that you did at home, but you had to go out into the world and express it. And so the way in which we receive and get close to God is through the means that he has appointed. You don't have your own personal, special, unique relationship with Jesus. You have a relationship with God through the means that he has established. So you don't get to sit at home. I have my own personal relationship with Jesus. No, you don't. You have an own personal relationship with yourself. But to have a relationship with God has to be done through the means that he has appointed because you're not special. I know your mama told you you're special, but you're not special. You're like everybody else. And there's a bunch of saints around the world that came before you, and you're just like all of us. And we all need the same grace, and we get it through the same means. And so this idea of quietism spread through England, and it became something called pietism, which is similar, etc. It's this idea that 
we do away with any external practices just to focus ourselves and sensing God and sensing whatever the spirit or whatnot. Probably the most popular guy in the 20th century that sort of uh, pushed this was Watchman Nee. I don't know if you ever read Watchman Nee. He was a Chinese Christian. Uh, godly man, died for the faith in China. But he spoke a lot about that. You can, I used to read a lot of his books. You can read through his entire books about how to get closer to God. And nowhere near in those books you will find sacraments or communion or anything like that, right? It's meditation, prayer, staying at home with God, etc. The problem with that is that if God has appointed means where he has promised in these places is where I give you my grace, then it is our responsibility to go to those places. And so in communion, God has promised, number one, to be there, to be there. So my contention is that communion is just not symbolical, but it is a means of grace. Furthermore, that Christ, his body and his blood are present in the bread and the wine of communion. Now, this idea that Christ is present in communion is not just a Catholic notion. It predates that. But in the Catholic Church, it is taught, remember last time when I spoke about it, that the bread and the wine is literally physically Jesus, right? And then you're presenting him to be re-sacrificed again and again for the forgiveness of your sins. This doctrine is called transubstantiation. Fancy word number one, transubstantiation. All right? It's not the transformers. It's transubstantiation. There you go. Right? Easy. Trans means change. And then substance. That's all that means. Fancy word just for say that. Right? So change in substance. By the way, just a side note, any word that ends with T-I-O-N is a Latin root. You want to translate it to Spanish, you take the T, make it a C, and put an accent on the O. Boom. I just taught you half of Spanish with one simple rule, right? Communication, Spanish, comunicación, right? There you go. So, transubstantiation. This is Greek philosophy, okay? Aristotle taught that what makes a thing a thing is the substance. And then the substance of a thing is what makes it the thing. So a ball, what makes a ball a ball? Roundness, right? It is round. That's what makes a ball a ball. If you take the roundness and you make a square, it's no longer a ball. That is the substance. Then you have, for everything, something called accidents. Accidents are Things that may change, that are external, but it don't change the substance. So a, a ball is blue, you make it green, it's still a ball, provided that it's round. Okay? That's, that's Aristotle. Transubstantiation is the doctrine that the substance changes, right, though the accidents remain the same, but it's still 
is a different thing though it looks like the accident. For example, though it is bread and wine accidentally, substantially it becomes the body and blood of Jesus. So it looks like bread and wine, but it's no longer bread and wine. It's the body and blood of Jesus. So when the priest speaks the words of consecration, that bread and wine turns into Jesus or the body and blood of Jesus, and therefore it ceases to be bread and wine. The accidents are the same, though the substance remains. That's transubstantiation. It's a Greek philosophical idea that is taught nowhere in the Bible. Okay? The Bible teaches two things, I believe. When Jesus says, this is my body, I believe he meant that. That is his body. And when he says, this is my blood, I believe he meant this is my blood. But the Bible also teaches that it is still bread and wine. Now you will say, how is that possible? And I will say, I do not know. I do not know. Let me give you an example of that. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says to them, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The answer to those questions is yes. So, is it the body and blood of Jesus, or is it bread and wine? Yes, to both questions. It is bread, he says. He doesn't say the bread ceases to be bread and is now the blood of Jesus. The bread that we break and the cup that we bless is not participation in the blood of Christ? Yes. Is it not participation in the body of Christ? Yes, is the answer to both questions. So the mystery is, that the body and blood, I mean, the, the body and blood of Jesus Christ is present in the bread and the wine when the bread and the wine is consecrated and communion is properly administered with the proper elements. It becomes the body and blood of Jesus. One of the most important documents that we have coming from the early church is the first apology from Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr was an early church Christian, an early church leader. And there is a whole discipline of Christianity called apologetics. You probably may have heard of it, right? Apologetics is when people try to defend the Christian faith from atheists, from other religions. Well, it is believed pretty much that that whole idea of apologetics started with Justin Martyr because he wrote his first apology. And apology means a defense in the Greek. Um, uh, of the Christian faith because during his time, this is 110 A.D. So, Apostle John dies somewhere around 100 A.D., 110, Justin Martyr is born, and then he was killed for the faith around 150-ish, okay? So, we have one generation from the death of the last apostle. And in his apologies, that he, he wrote his first apology for the emperor of Rome who was persecuting Christians. And the way you persecute people is that you make up stuff about them. They're rapists, they're murderers, they're evil, they're bad. And so that's what it was said about Christians. So he writes this entire thing. Hey, this is who we are. This is the practices that we have. 
We are not cannibals. We don't rape people. This is what we believe. And now his writing is very important because you get a lot of sort of details of how the early church were doing things. For example, you may hear people say, the early church worshiped on the Sabbath until the Catholic church changed it to Sunday. Not according to Justin Martyr. <laughs> because he's got a whole section of how they met on the first day of the week. And he gives you the reason. It was the, the, when the, our Lord was resurrected. So we're meeting in the first day of the, of the week. Also, it is the first day of creation. God rested on the seventh day, but he worked on the first day. We're working on a new creation, right? We're not resting, etc. So we get early witness of what Christians believed. And so he has a whole chapter, a whole section on the Eucharist or on communion. So... This is what he says concerning communion, what it is and who can participate in it. He says, this food is called among us Eucharistia, or the Eucharist, which no one is allowed to partake, but the man who believes that the things that we teach are true. So you have to believe what the Bible says to partake. And who has been washed with the washing that is for the forgiveness of sins and unto regeneration, that would be baptism. So, um, and who is so living as Christ has commanded. Three conditions. You must believe that the Bible says it's true. You must be baptized. Interestingly, he believed that it was for the remission of sins and regeneration, and that you live as Christ has commanded. Furthermore, for not as common bread and common drink do we receive these, but in like manner as Jesus Christ our Savior, having been made flesh by the Word of God, had both flesh and blood for our salvation, so likewise we have been taught that the food which is blessed by the prayer of His Word, from which our blood and flesh by transmutation are nourished, is the flesh and blood of that Jesus who was made flesh. For the apostles in the memoirs composed by them, which we call the Gospels, have thus delivered unto us what was enjoined upon them, that Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he said, Do this in my remembrance. This is my body. And in that same manner, having taken the cup and given thanks, he says, This is my blood. So Justin Martyr received or was taught, I don't know from whom, but one generation from the last apostle, um, that the cup that they received and the bread that they received, when the, when the word of prayer was spoken over them, we call that consecrations, that that cup and that bread is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. One of the earliest witnesses that we have of what Christian held concerning the communion. Now, of course, Justin Martyr is not the Bible, Right? He's not the Word of God, but we have an early witness of what early Christians believe. And of course, there's more early church fathers, and by more, I mean basically all of them, who believed the same way. And so, therefore, I believe that when receiving communion, we're not only just doing something to honor Jesus, but we are, as Paul says, partaking in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? To partake. Um, we obviously don't believe 
that Jesus Christ is making any more sacrifices. Hebrews makes it very clear that he died once and for all for the sins of the whole world. Hebrews makes it very clear that he entered once and for all. If you read through Hebrews 9 and 10, you will see that phrase, once, once and for all, complete, perfect sacrifice, no longer to be repeated. In the Old Testament, the human priests had to keep making sacrifice over and over and over again because those sacrifices were not enough to cleanse you of your sin. But Christ made one sacrifice, which is enough, once and for all, it was an eternal redemption for all who would believe in Him. So any view that we would have of communion, we cannot make it uh, go against what the Scriptures teaches about Christ's sacrifice. So we do not re-sacrifice Jesus, nor do we present Him as a sacrifice over and over again as Rome teaches. But through communion, we re-participate in the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In other words, through the blood of Jesus Christ that we consume in communion, we are participating in the shedding of His blood. Not that He is shedding His blood again, but the blood that He shared 2,000 years ago for our sins through communion as a means, we are participating in that sacrifice, and therefore that sacrifice is being reapplied to us. In other words, we're receiving that forgiveness of sins. Now, the idea that we could receive forgiveness of sins more than once, some people have a problem with that, right? Because most people teach once you're saved, past, present, and future sins are all forgiven, you're all covered in advance, you're good to go, you're ready to go. That's fine. But we're told in Scripture that when we sin as Christians, because we do fail, because we all succumb to temptation, that we need to come to God in repentance and seek forgiveness. That's the clear, explicit teaching of the Bible. Whatever you believe about the atonement and past and present and future, that's fine. But we read it, what was it, Romans chapter 5 we read today, right? Every night, our family, we, we sit and we recite the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Every day we recite this. My house, we recite prayers. Okay? Every day, give us this day our daily bread and forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Right? In communion, the reality of that sacrifice, we apprehend it when we have communion. It's not just a symbolical act. Mysteriously, spiritually, when we drink His blood, we are partaking and participating in that sacrifice and receiving the merits and benefits of that sacrifice anew every single time. When communion is properly consecrated and administered, we are receiving the benefits of that sacrifice over and over and over again. See, you don't get it all when you get saved. Some people say, yes, we do. Yes, we do. For example, the glorification of your body was purchased for you at the cross when Jesus died. 
You don't get that when you get saved. You get the promise of that. That is going to happen to you, but you don't get it. I've known some of you for 10 years. I have seen your bodies unglorifying <laughs> year after year. All right? Okay? You don't have the glorified bodies yet. It's a promise, right? And communion is a means for us to receive that promise anew. Furthermore, because of this, because of this, I think this is important. The greatest act of worship that anybody has ever done in the history of the universe was when Jesus Christ offered his body as a sacrifice for the sins of the world in obedience to God the Father. That is the greatest act of worship in the history of the universe. To participate in that is the ultimate act of worship that we can do. There is no singing in the universe that comes close to what happens when we have communion. We are participating in the greatest act of worship that the universe has ever seen in communion. You, you can read through the whole Bible and you never see God killing anybody for not singing right or properly. If he did that, I'm not even going to say nothing. If we, you ain't never seen that in the Bible, all right? But you see in the Bible, in 1 Corinthians, when they were disrespecting communion, as they were, Paul says, this is why some of you are sick, and even this is why some of you are dead. Because they were not having communion. They were disrespecting the table of the Lord. The same way that in the Old Testament, some people were disrespecting the sacrifices that God had commanded, and God killed some people, right? So this is not just something that we are to take lightly, but this communion is something that we is that it is participation in that ultimate sacrifice that Christ made on the cross. Furthermore, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17, he says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So to partake of the bread is to partake of the body of Christ, which is the body of Christ, and to partake in it we're united one to another. Because he says, we are one body, and we all part, for we all partake of the one bread. By partaking of the one bread, we're partaking of the body of Christ, which is the entire number of believers. This is how God unites His church. Believers from the past that came before us, believers in the present, all over the world, partaking of His body, are being united into that one body, Paul says. He goes on to say, Consider the people of Israel, the Jews, who are still making sacrifices in the, table, in the temple. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? In the Old Testament, you brought a sacrifice. Part of that sacrifice was taken and burned. Smoke went up into the air. You were forgiven of your sins. The other part of the sacrifice, you sat and you ate it there. You ate the sacrifice. And by doing that, you were participating in that sacrifice. And it's almost as you were having a meal with God. He was coming down. You were eating with Him. 
There was peace, right? So Paul is saying that in communion, when we have communion and we take communion, we're sharing a meal with God and participating in the sacrifice that he did once and for all for all of us. And so communion, more than just something that we do a certain amount, you know, a couple of times or once a month, it is actually an act of worship and a participation in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that he did for us. So the thing, I think I said that some time ago, the things that God has ordained matter. Simple as that. The thing that God has um, said that should be done in his name are things that we should take seriously. And unfortunately, a lot of times we don't. People are very, um, we are very irreverent today to the things of God. If people say that, nobody cares about the things of God anymore. Now, it is my opinion that is due to a lot of the teaching that underlies these things, right? Um, but I hear people say, you know, people are not serious about the things of God anymore. What does that mean? What are the things of God? Where are the things of God? Can we see them? In the Old Testament, you walk to a Jew, it's like, where are the things of God? Over there. Tent over there. That's where the things of God are. I didn't even go to that. You got to be careful. There's instructions and stuff, but they're over there. Where are the things of God today? See, this is what happens because we don't have sacraments anymore. We don't have sacraments anymore. We don't have things, things of God anymore. We have abstracts. We go to a church service, the music is nice, the presence of God was there. Okay, I guess it was. But in communion, God says, this is my body, this is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. The presence of God is there. How do you know that? Because the scripture says, it makes a promise that that is his body and that is his blood. The presence of God is there. How do I obtain forgiveness of sins? Yes, you can pray and ask God for forgiveness. But when you come to communion, you know, you know, this is my body shed, broke, you know, shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Take it and receive it. I can take it and I can receive it. This is why we need physical, visible things or means for God to convey invisible spiritual things to us because we can see them. You hear people ask, when were you saved? Well, I was saved in the summer, such and such, or I received Jesus and such and such. That's fine. November 11, 2005, I was baptized. And I received forgiveness of sins, Acts 2.38. I was united to Christ, Romans chapter 6, verse 2, and I was saved, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Got three verses. That happened to me at baptism. 
What happened to me before that? I don't know. Obviously, I believe in Jesus. I believe in all the things that the scripture taught. But I have a reference, a physical, actual, visible, tangible reference where I know God promised he would deliver these things to me. And by faith, I take him at his word. Right? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Boom. I, by faith, I believe that. Right? And then some people say, well, that's not what happened in baptism. Okay, fine. I'm holding up to what the scripture is telling me that God says. But when you take things lightly, I've heard people say, I'm thinking about getting baptized. I don't know, I'm thinking through it. Maybe in the summer, it's kind of cold now. I'm going to wait till the summer, right? Trivializing it. You trivialize the things of God. It's not that important. It's not necessary. Feel like I'm thinking about it, right? Tell that to the early church fathers who were getting baptized in the winter in Russia in zero degree weather. They didn't care, right? Is it too warm? Is it too cold to receive the forgiveness of sin? Is it too cold to be united to Christ? Is it too cold to receive salvation? Well, that doesn't happen. Okay, then you can wait till the next summer. You see what I mean? You lose the sacraments. Irreverence comes in every single time. Church history. And so the things of God matter. The things that he has appointed, that he has degreed, the places where he has says, I will meet you there, I will give you things, matter to him and should matter to us because he does them for our benefits. They're not works, they're means of grace. They're places where we get things from him, they matter. So communion matters, baptism matters because these are the things that Jesus Christ himself has ordained to be Practice in the church, we're giving to the church to bring people to Him. It's the church. You don't live your Christian life on your own. You live it in the church. The church was given the means of grace by God Himself. It is in the church that you hear the Word of God. It is in the church that you are baptized. It is in the church where you receive communion. Is it in the church that you have the fellowship of the saints? It is in the body of Christ, not on your own, not at home, not with Hillsong on. It is in the church. Okay? When God is going to reach out to the world, He's going to reach out to the world through the means He's appointed. That doesn't mean that God is bound by that. God may work outside of that. He does. Right? You hear, I know stories of people that were saved because they had a dream about Jesus. And they're now living Christian lives. Is that true? Of course. Of course. Because somebody who received uh, Jesus and immediately died after they were baptized, they went to heaven? Yes. But exceptions don't make the rule. You see what I'm saying? I know people that were in prison and they only had... Uh, one page of the Bible, and they read it over again, and, you know, a year later, they were martyred for their faith. They went, you know, did the Holy Spirit, did the work in their lives? Yes, He did. Did they went to heaven? Yes, they did. That's an exception. That's not the rule. The rule is God works through certain appointed ways and means. 
and we are to partake on those for our benefit and for His glory. So the things of God matter, and they're important. Uh, today, it was just what communion is. Next time, I'll talk about what, are, what we receive in communion, maybe in a little bit more detail. So, but anyways, the important thing is, is that we understand that as a church, that the things of God that He command us to participate in matter and should be taken seriously by us. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us promises, promises that you've attached to external signs that we know are true, and that we know we could hold on to them by faith, Lord, and receive the things that you have promised for us. We thank you for the once and for all sacrifice that you made for us on the cross to bring us to you to give you, to give us all of your merits and blessings that that sacrifice has acquired for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.